0: So um, we probably look at around 5,000 deals a year. Um, yeah. And we call it screening. So these are the companies that we screen. And then out of those, we probably have a first call with 1,500, um, which means it's a great deal of companies um, that we get exposure to and that we see. And by the end of the year, we probably invest in about seven to eight companies uh, per annum.
1: Welcome to Venturing Switzerland. The purpose of this podcast series is to conduct interviews with venture capital managers investing in Swiss ventures. Will they make it on an institutional investors' long list? Kind of shark tank or lion's den reversed. This is uh, the eighth episode of Venturing Switzerland. Please go back to listen to the prior episodes about CVVC, Privilege Ventures, TX Ventures, and many more. My name is Christian Dreyer, and I am your host. Today, we are talking to Alexandra Laska of Red Alpine. Hi, Alexandra.
0: Hi, Christian. So lovely to be here today.
1: Yeah, very happy to have you. Red Alpine. Where does that brand come from? What's the what's behind the name?
0: <laughs> so Red Alpine is probably one of the older VC funds here in Switzerland. Um, we've been around for over 16 years and our two founding partners, Michael and Peter, have both been active as angels for many, many years. And um, they saw what was happening in the U.S. and Silicon Valley and um, saw great opportunity in the tech ecosystem in Europe and wanted to institutionalize their angel investments and make them available to other investors Mm -hmm. in in Switzerland and and beyond. And so they decided to establish Red Alpine. And I guess the name comes from the fact that we are obviously in an Alpine region and are sort of in the heart of um, three very important markets for tech innovation, which is Germany, Um, Switzerland and um, Austria and the red I guess comes from the fact that when the sun goes up um, it's a beautiful red color in the mountains and um, we basically see the companies we invest in as rising stars or rising suns maybe in this context (laughs) Um, and, and so this is how the name came about back in the day I guess.
1: Right. So I guess you are really all mountaineers at the firm and uh, part of your recruitment process is climbing on a 4000 uh, meter mountain or something like that.
0: That's exactly right. No, I'm joking. Um, no, it, <laughs> it, it, it's a great idea. Maybe we should implement that. But I'm glad that we didn't implement that when I was interviewing, that <laughs> we could not compete with the with the Swiss Alpine people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Excellent. So, Alexander, tell me, what's your VC origin story personally? Uh, How do you come to uh, venture capital, venture capital investing?
0: So I have a bit of a I did a bit of a three sixty turn, I guess. So I actually studied law back in London and my first career move was to start trading on the Goldman Sachs trading floor in London. So my background That's something
1: completely different.
0: <laughs> public markets, um very different, correct. Um, However, towards the end of my time at Goldman, I was in charge of launching a new trading product, and it was probably the most entrepreneurial thing you could do at a highly regulated big bank like that, and I really enjoyed that, so I decided to leave and um, start my own business in in the payments um, area, payment space, which I did for about a year, year and a half, Um, and then I joined a VC fund in London, followed by two more startups, um, one of which is now a unicorn. Um, so one startup out of London that I joined, I joined them as a number 12 employee. They grew to 700 now. Um, So so it's been a huge experience for me. And then the second one actually was here in Switzerland, which was um, also a VC funded company in the deep tech space. Then I thought, how can I combine my operational experience from actually being in startups and my financial background and make use from both? And VC is sort of the obvious choice where you can definitely leverage your operational background, um, but you also have to have this financial savviness. So so this is how I ended up in VC Mm -hmm. Um, and having been married to the respective ideas of the startups that I've been in i thought that it's a great opportunity because in a vc fund you get exposure to lots of different ideas and lots of different innovations so you're not just you know married to one idea Mm-hmm. You have a much broader horizon, and this is something that really attracted me into the VC space. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so the the classical ADHD uh, of uh, of the VC, yeah, with the uh, with the many uh, different ideas exposures, whereas uh, the actual startup uh, entrepreneur has to focus, obviously.
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
1: okay, very good. Um, now that you have been uh, in in liquid markets, uh, investing public markets, um, how is venture capital different uh, from uh, from liquid market investing in in your view? What's the what's the main differences? The most important ones.
0: Well, I think the one you just mentioned is the liquidity part. I think everybody knows about that. Public markets are obviously sure. much liquid, um, whereas um, on the VC side of things, one sometimes says um, that. The average relationship with your investment, with your portfolio company, um, lasts longer than the average marriage in Europe. So, (laughs) uh, you know, it's very much a marathon, not a sprint. And so I think this is a very important difference. Um, On a personal level, obviously, it was super fast paced on the trading floor. um, And and it's a little slower on the VC side of things. Um, Nevertheless, hugely exciting for different reasons, which I will get into in a second. I think the big difference is the data that you have that you decide about the investment on. So obviously, public markets, you have much more data, uh, much more historical data that you look into in order to make some um, quantitative analysis and make a decision about an investment. On the private side, clearly, especially on the early early investment side, you you don't have quite the same. Um, Very often, um, you have very few data points to go by. uh, You have an incomplete product and you have founders who are actually one of the bigger reasons for you to invest in. And obviously you have the more quantitative thing is I guess the market opportunity, right? So this is something you can probably quantify a bit more, but generally there is less quantitative hard data to go by. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing to mention is probably the risk and return aspect of it. So arguably um, VC is higher risk. However, it also translates and we've seen that in performance numbers um, into better performance or outperformance um, versus the public market. So over the long term, we've seen that um, even within the private market space, VC has been one of the highest performing asset classes. And so this is something that obviously is very important to our investors, and it's important to highlight as well
1: doesn't obviously mean that it's going to be the same in the future. Uh, of
0: course, absolutely. And past performance,
1: I, et cetera,
2: right?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> and our legal counsel would probably tell me that I have to give a disclaimer that past yeah, yeah, performance yeah. is
2: not
0: in of future <laughs> performance. So uh, just for it to be said, as uh, so everybody knows, but historically speaking, at least. um sure. Having said that, I think what is also very important is more on the softer side of things. So if you look at startups, they create way more um, opportunities for economic value, uh, arguably because they create a lot more quicker um, employment.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Very
0: established companies grow less quickly and they create less um, employment, arguably. So this is a huge part of, of what is important to us as well, that it actually drives an economy of itself. Secondly, it really drives innovation. A small startup is much more nimble. They can um, change paths really quickly. They can um, react much quicker uh, to changes in the market or to demands from customers. And they can innovate in a much more, I would say brave way because they're less restricted maybe in a sense uh, through the structure, et cetera. So I think that's another big, big difference between the companies that you trade on the public markets versus the companies that you would have exposure to on the VC side of things.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Last but not least, when you trade as an investor, when you trade a publicly traded company, um, you most likely are not really on the ground getting your hands dirty with that company operationally or otherwise. Now, I think in the VC space, if you're a good investor, you're incredibly active. And especially on the early stage side of things, if you're a majority sh- um, investor, let's say, or you take lead, um, which Red Alpine is always aiming to do, um, then you, you chances are that you have a big impact on the company, which direction it takes, how it operates, and its ultimate success, and taking it, propelling it to the next level. So I think this is also a big, big difference in VC versus public markets and ultimately this is also what attracted me because I can now implement a lot of the things that I did operationally in startups as an investor which on the public side I would not have a chance to do at the Mm. time.
2: In
1: this in this section, uh, we're we're actually talking about a couple of different topics. We're starting off with uh, Red Alpine's investment beliefs. Um, so, what are um, uh, what are the investment beliefs that Red Alpine holds? How does it see itself uh, um, different? What are the uh, peculiarities of the markets that it operates in, which link to the firm's strength, etc.? So
0: so very uh, lots of different points i will try to answer in a structured structured way um so i guess we have quite a few different beliefs that equally i think make us different so hopefully i can um uh, kill two birds with one stone here by answering the that Belief question, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, it's um, the yeah, that interconnection between actually the the reading of market structure and the and the one's own uh, positioning within it, uh, which which makes up for the belief.
0: Of course. So I think one big aspect or belief for us, which also makes us quite unique, if you look at different VC funds, is the intersection between software and science. So this is something that we've been doing. From a very early stage, Um, we invest in scientific as well as technology-driven companies. And we think that a big value is at the intersection of it. And what comes with it is obviously that in-house, we have people who have a scientific background and um, understand the regulatory landscape as well as um, the science behind the claims that are given. Um, But we equally also have commercial people who have more of an operative background, less academic, um, and can understand or add their point of view on how to go to market and commercialize these ideas, these scientific potentially ideas. So so I think this is quite unique for us. And we see that this is bringing fruits. Um, We have been operating over 16 years. There have been a lot of ups and downs in the market. In the meantime, a lot of scientific Um, or or science driven companies are anti-cyclical, So it means that we also have almost like um, you could call it a hedge or downside protection in Mm. a way through a diversified portfolio that has exposure to both. So I think this is one big belief that also makes us stand out. Um, The second one is that we're highly disciplined. And you probably hear that from many investors. So Mm. it doesn't sound like something special on the surface of it. But why do I say we're disciplined? We invest in between 18 and 20 companies per fund. That's not very many. So this means that we have to be very picky and very selective when we invest. Um, And what we do is we really try not to invest in hypes or temporary trends, but really fundamentally understand the impact of the company or the solution onto the market beyond the current market situation because we are aware that this is a dynamic situation that can change and and I think that um, because we are so selective that's one aspect of it but because we also have only 18 to 20 shots per fund we also are incredibly involved at early stage to um, really try and propel the company to the next level and help them succeed Mm
2: -hmm.
0: so that would be the second one and the third one which kind of intertwines a bit with the second one is the tech hedge so this is again something that has been very important to us for years and years and years and this goes back also to not reacting to temporary hypes in the business um, which may not have any defensibility around their product or uniqueness around their product so we very much look at um, there being tech defensibility there being something really truly unique um, and we very often um, do deep dives and have convictions around mm-hmm. what those tech hedges are, let's say. Well,
1: um, why do you call that tech hedge? I don't quite understand that. It seems to me more like it's a moat um, when, we're, when we're talking about concepts like that.
0: You could oh. call it a moat, but I think the reason we call it a tech hedge is because is it's intrinsically connected to the technical product. Mm-hmm. So... Um, one could argue that maybe business model innovation is innovation, but maybe it's not quite enough. We think that mm-hmm. there is defensibility in product innovation, product defensibility, and oh, um, sure. that's hand in hand with tech. So this is why we call it tech hedge. Of course, innovation can come from different angles. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. tech only, but we think that it's more defensible than let's say right. in quotation marks yeah. just well,
1: there, there's <laughs> uh, there's uh, there's a school of thought that basically talks about the tech stack. Uh, when you have multiple layered uh, technologies, uh, that, that uh, each one of them is relatively easily replicated, but uh, but the stack of it uh, is not, um, uh, and that in itself then creates a moat. So, uh, but but that's just terminology. Uh, but, so I was curious w- uh, whether there's something else about that hedge thing. <laughs>
0: This could also be a hedge, of course. It is Mm -hmm. very possible that a company uses existing components, but Mm -hmm. in combination and how they use it, how they implement it, how they make it available to their customer Mm -hmm. is the innovation for sure. That that is also very possible. But there's also companies that create their own technology from scratch. Um, And and these are the ones that we like a lot um, because we think that even during downtimes in the market, like we are arguably in now, um, these sort of companies will still make it through because they create really genuine value that is very difficult to replicate.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but going to be, back to beliefs, I think there is one last belief that I wanted to share here with you. And um, I guess it's the idea that um, we are in Europe. Um, and I think it's an important one. So we're based in Zurich, which is probably... Um, an unlikely area potentially for VCs, maybe not the first thing that comes to mind when you think VC, but it means that we're in the heart of where everything is going on. Um, Europe has a lot of different tech hubs and we have access to all of them by being in the middle of it. Um, And we also think that being close to world-class academic institutions, such as ETH, let's say, PFL, these are all of huge value to us. We, for instance, work a lot with academics because a lot of ideas spin out of universities or come from universities. It's a huge um, source of intellectual um, ability, let's say, or creativity. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think this is an important belief. We think we're big fans of Europe. We only invest in Europe. um, And we think that um, it's important to bring that up. the the one disappointing thing, and I'm moving maybe away from our original topic here, is that unfortunately Europeans or European investors don't seem to appreciate quite how what a breeding ground for innovation mm-hmm. um, Europe is. Um, because for instance, there was a research piece the other day that came out that said that about 10% of German startups have US pension money in them which means that obviously those U.S. pension funds will draw um, a lot of their benefit from those startups that are successful, right? Conversely, German uh, German pension funds or retirement funds only hold about 0.2% of those same startups. So it's, it's a bit of a shame because we just talked about how asset classes, how it outperformed in the past, not an indication of the future, but hopefully it we will continue on that trajectory. And yet it's people outside of Europe benefiting from that innovative mm. drive force of Europe. So um, so this is why we are big fans of Europe. We want to stay in Europe. We want to support European companies. Um, so, yeah, I think this is another belief that is incredibly important, I think. Mm.
1: Wonderful. That's a great segue into the next question, which is about your focus areas. Uh, Do you have uh, any focus areas? And by that, I mean, geography-wise or industries, uh, stages, uh, etc. So what are they?
0: (laughs) Of course. So geography, Europe, for sure. Um I would say that historically our portfolio was maybe seventy to eighty percent DAC focused again, proximity to market, very very strong network in those I- regions. so mm-hmm. it makes the most sense. um however, you know we we do expand beyond um and more and more we see really exciting companies coming out of other hubs in Europe. um so geography that's probably that. and um, in terms of um of stage. So we are typically and historically early stage investors. So we invest at seed to series A stage. Um, We typically keep a part of our investment for follow-on, which means that we would typically, for the companies that do perform well, um, take part in the follow-on round as well. Um, We typically are a lead or at least co-lead, which means that we hold at least an observer seed or a board seat um, because we want to really have an impact and be involved, as mentioned before. Um, And in terms of sectors, we're pretty sector agnostic. Um, We don't like to cluster too much around one area, I guess, uh, because we only have 18 to 20 investments per fund. Um, but we're also open-minded about new technologies um, mm. coming into play. So if you told us 16 years ago that you wanted to invest in alternative protein companies, it would have probably blown your mind a little bit. Um, right now, it's 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 for some funds at least, and ours included, we have done about four or five food tech investments. And um, so you have to keep an open mind because the market is shifting. The market is dynamic. So we're generalist in that in that respect. Now, in terms of um, stage, probably the one last thing to mention is that we do recognize also that a lot of money in European startups at later stages flows from abroad. And by abroad, I mean U.S. and Asia. And we think that it's very important that European tech also stays in European ownership Uh, beyond just the seed and series A, for which there are a lot of European funds. Mm -hmm. And um, especially now with what's going on in the world, this sort of technological independence of Europe is even more important than ever. And so um, we we have set up a separate vehicle, um, which is an evergreen structure and it invests across verticals, across stages um, to diversify, but also to be able to have more firepower for later stage companies that have performed incredibly well. Um, So we're talking about, um, you know, category leaders or the winners from our early stage portfolios.
1: Mm -hmm. Is that the summit fund or? That's
0: exactly right. That's the summit fund, exactly. Mm -hmm. And the evergreen structure is um, different from our early stage funds, which is closed end. This is the most traditional uh, type Mm -hmm. of structure. And and it's partially on the back of feedback we got from institutional investors who do want to step onto that VC ladder and Mm -hmm. said that, you know, evergreen structure is the preferred way to go for various reasons, including liquidity. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so this is something that we're trying to do to encourage more later stage investment within Europe from Europeans.
1: Right, very good. yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the uh, in the next section, but uh, but but yeah, that's that's good for now. Uh, you um mentioned a couple of times the scientific angle to the uh, to your investments. Uh, any particular thoughts about deep tech um, as a as a meta investment concept, say, um,
0: I mean, we're big fat. I mean, firstly, I think one has to start with what does one mean by deep tech, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like AI. I think there's lots of different interpretations of it and can mean different things for different people. But long story short, of course, we like deep tech. We have done some deep tech investments in the past and are looking proactively at them still now. Um, So let me
1: return the question Uh, What do you understand on the deep tech?
0: Wow! <laughs> yeah, you put me on the spot. Now you put me on the spot. <laughs> so for me, deep tech, and I listened to one of your previous podcasts, um, <laughs> and and there someone mentioned that deep tech for them means that there is a hardware element to it. Um, mm-hmm. This is not how I personally understand deep tech. Uh, for me, deep tech um, also means that it's. Um, very complex technologically solution, um, it can also be on a software level, um, it can be something um, super cutting edge and and maybe something that hasn't yet been tried commercially let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, things Like quantum computing come to mind um, or cyber security, but in the context of some incredibly complex and new methodologies. Um, so for me, that is deep tech, but that's my personal view. Um, okay. Obviously, everybody will have something something different yeah. to say on that. Yeah. Um, well, but the I classical elements. There has to be a hardware element to it necessarily.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think the classical elements typically are that there is protectable interne- intellectual property, That's uh, that there's uh, a lot of capital investment, which typically means that there is actually hardware, that there's atoms rather than electrons, uh, and, and, and that moat uh, element uh, in, in general. Uh, so I think. Uh, so, yeah. Or it
0: becomes a lot of money because it takes a long time to get Yeah, into the exactly and you can't commercialize it for a long time so um, right. yeah I think uh, but, but yes absolutely um, mm. there are also hardware companies though that um, are very techie, um, but they can commercialize quicker and maybe the um, overhead is not that high arguably mm-hmm. um, but yes absolutely
1: mm-hmm. got it Tell me a little bit about your uh, deal funnel, about your deal flow. Um, uh, what, how many deals are you looking at per annum? Um, how is it structured, your funnel? Uh, how many deals do you conclude per annum, etc. that sort of thing. Numbers.
0: <laughs> so I guess, again, this is sort of the... Um, This is the upside, I guess, of uh, being around for 16 years. You get exposure to a lot that's going on because you have the network um, of not only other VCs, but, you know, people know you and they come to you with deal flow. Um,
1: entering to your ADHD. (laughs) Exactly.
0: exactly. Um, (laughs) So um, we probably look at around 5,000 deals a year. Um, Yeah. And we call it screening. So these are the companies that we screen. And then out of those, we probably have a first call with 1,500, um, which yeah. means it's a great deal of companies um, that we get exposure to and that we see. And by the end of the year, we probably invest in about seven to eight companies uh, per annum. So you can really see the discipline and the um, sort of that there is a whole structure behind how we go about deciding which ones we take on or take further versus mm-hmm. not.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and what is probably an interesting fact or stat that I wanted to share with you as well, that these numbers amount to about 83% of all the top deals seen in the DAC region or 70% of the top deals seen in the European Union. So we see the majority of cases or deals that are being done in Europe, um, which I think is, is really important because we have comparisons um, we really can hopefully then select the best and the creme de la creme of of what out mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. okay interesting well, that's uh, that's quite a number uh, do you use uh, some uh, i mean everybody talks about ai now do you use ai tools uh, to help you screen and uh, and and uh, make sense of uh, all that avalanche of um, of uh, of deals coming your way
0: I think that parts of the deal will have to come through some sort of proprietary platform. And I'm not going to get into the detail of it because it's also our competitive advantage, of course, Um, but but a part of the deals, of course, that we see would come through some sort of in-house solution that does use um, certain methodologies to make the best, um, let's say, suggestions or recommendations. Now, we would never make an investment decision based just on that. Um, There is always a human element involved in it. And we would always assess every deal individually, um, in person, um, on a team level. Um, But yes, of course, a part of the deal flow or funnel, um, we we do get via those methods, I guess. Um, I think most funds do it these days as well. There's just simply so much going on that you probably need a little bit of help from the machine to to, to um, find some of the pearls, but ultimately it's a human business. And especially at early stage, there has to be an interaction with the founders, and um, you know AI will probably not replace it in the near term. I don't see that
1: happening. Ah, I'm, I'm fully with you when it comes to the to the actual closing and the negotiations for the for the actual deals. Uh, but I'm surprised now that you say that uh, that you're uh, that you're working with these deals because it, exactly in my uh, earlier conversations, most people actually. Uh, had said that uh, that in in their from their perspective uh they uh, they see such tools but they don't think they're there yet they're not mature enough uh, for for their purposes that's one thing and the other thing is uh that uh, that uh, especially the data component uh, for early stage uh, is not as or is not di- disciplined enough or detailed enough uh, to feed into those tools as well uh, so so there's a there's there's a bit of a bit of a mismatch there between uh, what you're saying and uh, and what the others uh, have said before but that's not a bad thing but so of i'm i'm interested
0: <laughs> I think that's what sets species apart when they do something differently and mm, sure. um, so, so you know we use in-house tools which okay. we develop ourselves um mm-hmm. and we use certain data points which we see as indicative of a company's potential future success um, based on our very long um, experience in the field. Um, When we're speaking about quantitative things, such as numbers, of course, firstly, they're probably not public. um, And secondly, there's probably very few of those. So um, so absolutely with you. So I, I, I don't say anything contrary to that. Um, but what I would say is that we we develop tools also in house,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and we use our expertise to understand which aspects of a particular company uh, or a founding team makes them more likely to make it through the funnel with us. Um, there are ways to do it. It's by no means perfect. It's work in progress, and it will continue Always. to evolve. But um, but it's um, yes, and it's only one part of. we get our deal flow from Mm. and when we look at the quality of deal flow a lot of the really quality deals that we get is through either proactively doing deep dives and and reaching out to companies um, or through our network of founders other vcs or our lps Mm -hmm. Um, so i would almost say that these are the more important channels at the moment at least Uh, but i think that we can't afford to ignore the other Part sure. Of the, of the deal hey, flow, and, and you know, it it keeps evolving and getting better.
1: Well, and uh, there's uh, there there has to be a way uh, in which you manage the tenfold uh, number of uh, of deals coming your way than uh, the average other uh, uh, VCs as well. So uh, so that certainly makes a difference. Uh, now you have been around, as you mentioned, for a while, uh, made a few. Uh, tours around the block uh, since Red Alpine Capital One, um, so I'm sure there have been some dots in your investments as well. Um, uh, what ha- What have you learned from them, and do you have an institutionalized learning process in place?
0: Yes. Indeed, Uh, I think that um, any VC fund that tells you they had only good investments is probably lying Um, and it's okay. Um, I think that's the structure of VC investing, that there will be a few fund returners in your portfolio and then a few that maybe have not as
1: well
0: as you were hoping. Exactly. Now, of course, we learn continuously. This is not something that happens once and then we stop. Um, But... I think what is important is communication and sharing of the knowledge and findings. And we do that in several ways. Um, One is we have um, twice a year, we have a portfolio review, um, which means we go through every single portfolio company from all the funds. um, And we discuss them in the entire partnership and this means that partners who are maybe not as close to certain companies because they're not on those boards will still have exposure to what are the hiccups, what are the problems. um and hopefully this means that they can add a outside in view, so mm-hmm. a innovative approach, innovative um, way of uh, solving the issue. so so firstly, this is how we share learnings, but also try to find solutions by uh, leveraging other people's outside view. Um, Secondly, we have portfolio lunches. So um, every other Friday, we try to invite a portfolio company um, to talk to the entire team. It includes also the, uh, the ops team, not just the investment team. And again, there we can challenge the company or try to find solutions or learn from some of their findings. So these are two very important things. And um, we also have a staff meeting every Monday all together where we share potential learnings, not only from companies that maybe have not done very well, but also from deals that we may have lost. So it goes also beyond just, you know, what happened with portfolio companies. So I think these are sort of um, the ways that we try to share our findings and do something about it. I think the important thing and this is something that we learned early on is, as I mentioned before, an average relationship with a startup can sometimes last longer than an average marriage. We mm-hmm. um, are very emotionally vested in those companies because you are there through the you know lows and highs, um, through pivots and whatnot. It's very emotional. And um, at the end of the day, what you have to as an investor understand is when to pull the plug Mm -hmm. so appreciate when okay this company the upside is limited or non-existent and we have to spend less time and not spend any more money on them because it's very easy for emotions to just continue supporting continue putting money into it um, but at the end of the day, for our investors, we have their interest at heart as well, of course, oh. and we have to uh, put our time and effort where the highest opportunities lie, of course.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and how, but- how do you do that? How do you? Um, can you go into a bit more detail? I mean, the "until do- death doth us part" uh, mm-hmm. uh, probably doesn't work in that sense. So uh,
0: <laughs> no, not quite. Not quite. Um, I think that. Um, So firstly, well, I think you should always try to give them some sort of rescue. um, uh, God, I I don't know the word now, but to to give them a hand so they give them the tools so they can Mm. move on and and still do well, of course. Mm -hmm. But I think eventually when there has been no product market fit for a really long time, despite various pivots, let's say, when the money is running out after many, many pivots, many tries and errors, um, and they're not being much to show for themselves in terms of traction, let's say, because they couldn't find a product market fit or the go-to-market approach that works. Mm-hmm. Then I think you have to ask yourself the question, is there a problem to be solved, or did we misjudge the opportunity here? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this would probably be the the first reason why you would probably take a step back and take on a more passive approach, I guess, and certainly not reinvest. Um, there are situations where a business is in trouble because there is a temporary dip in the market, let's say. These are obviously different. We still believe that these companies and and there will be dips. Sure. there will be no company ever gets to sure, with, of course with hiccups. So I think it's important to identify what is sort of a, that's mm-hmm. as you would call it because as soon as they run out of money they will not be able to re-raise again because they weren't able to prove what they need to prove mm-hmm. versus um i don't know regulatory sign-off takes longer than anticipated yeah. uh, but We still believe in it um so let's get cracking on that so um mm-hmm. so i think it's 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 very subtle and it's something that you learn with experience i think to pick up on these signals and to be fair, sometimes you might be wrong and they might pleasantly surprise you still with the, you know, as you call it, the rabbit out of the hat,
1: uh, you Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, that's interesting. You also mentioned <clears throat> that you're reviewing lost deals, i.e. Uh, when you're when you're actually uh, not, uh, uh, when you're not admitted to the investment. Um, uh, that's my understanding of what you said. Uh, that's interesting because uh, that's actually uh Also, obviously, a risk. uh, But isn't there also that element of the winner's curse uh, so that you're uh, actually... Uh, m- maybe you're happy in in the uh, in hindsight uh, you you could be glad that you didn't actually get into that deal at that valuation uh, etc uh, so that's uh, that's a bit of a um, tricky assessment uh, right after
0: <laughs> it's really interesting because when we talk about the lost deals we talk about the the funding round that happened right here right now with right. a top fund exactly. from Europe and we see it as a lost deal. And I always turn around and then say, let's see whether it's really a lost deal. Because <laughs> obviously, the lifetime of a startup is very long before they exit. And there can be lots of things happening in between. And the fact that someone believed in their story now and was willing to pay a lot of money for it does not necessarily mean that this is the next Decacorn that will be the fund returner. So absolutely, absolutely right. I think that you also have to, as I mentioned, we're quite disciplined investors. So yeah. during COVID times, for instance, valuations were incredibly high. Um, so much so that we as a fund could not justify those valuations and um were not willing to really play that game, let's say. There were a lot of very hyped topics that did not have this tech hedge that were not very innovative but it was the flavor of the month mm. and uh, people just jumped on it and there was <clears> a lot of um competition for the round and we, we tried to stay disciplined and not give in to the shiny uh you know <laughs> firm that shiny to new
1: wearing. toy huh?
2: <laughs> and the
0: headlines because ultimately you get the headline the bigger the race right but it doesn't yeah, necessarily sure. mean that it's a good thing um for the investors um, so i think in the past we probably lost I think there's quite a few deals where we really wanted them and then we didn't get them. I think very often it's a matter of timing that, um, you know, they already have term sheets and we have to have time to also assess an investment. We we can't just, you know, within two hours decide, of course, let's do this. Um, So there is this aspect, of course. And then you have to ask yourself the question, why didn't you see the deal earlier to have that time? So this is more the question then. Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right. I mean, we won't really know what the real missing out-ons were until they're further down the line. And I think if I can bring it back to the later stage investments that we are now able to do with the Summit Fund is we have the benefit of hindsight. Mm -hmm. So... We have already contact with those companies. We know the founders. We observe them over a period of time. If they do turn out to be those category leaders, then we still have the firepower to you know, become part of that success. Um, mm. So I think that's important to mention as well.
1: Got it. Very good. Now, conscious of time, we only have a limited uh, time budget as well. We need to maybe speed up a little bit. Um, talking about uh, risk management, uh, the classical uh, risk management elements uh, in in your in strategy uh, from the textbook, etc. W- w- what's your speciality in there? I mean, you mentioned that you take board seats. I'm sure you have liquidation preferences, preferred stock, and all that to ask.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think risk management starts pre-investment already, right? When you do your due diligence with startups. So I think it's important that we really understand the market that they're entering. We really understand the technology that they're developing, which includes things like regulatory also and IP matters, of course. Um, So firstly, we have to know how internally. So we do a lot of due diligence ourselves, but we also talk to their customers. We talk to people they worked with before. Um, We would talk to people from that industry and we would also ask our portfolio companies to maybe test Mm -hmm. them out or take a look at the, the tech under the bonnet. Um, so, this is probably very important. And during the um, DD process, we spend a lot of time with the founders. So, this is kind of the soft DD on the founders because we get to know them over a period of time. Um, and then post post the investment, and and obviously what is also important is we have this independent IEFM, which also has to approve our investments. So, I think that's another layer of controls um, on a more formal structure <laughs> level.
1: Do, do they actually materially play a role? I mean, uh, obviously, the, the, the technical documents say they do, but uh, but <laughs> do they do in practice?
0: I believe they do, because they do yeah. come back with... I mean, look, I can't speak for them. I don't know how in-depth they go when they look at the documents, but um, mm. they do come back with questions, and they challenge certain assumptions. So I mm. assume that it's not just on paper, but I guess you would have to ask them how seriously they mm. take it. Hopefully, they take it seriously. <laughs> Uh, because it's a protection mechanism also for our LPs. Um, But yeah, then post-investment, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, board seats. um, I think that um, we, one of the risk management parts is also that we, as again I mentioned, we only invest in 16, maybe 20 companies per fund. So we have to be incredibly disciplined. So we kind of impose that on us, really, that risk management, because we don't have as many, let's say, as many options, we can't invest in a hundred companies and then see what sticks, right? Sure, sure. So I think um, that's also in a way risk management um, mm. and board seats very important, all these sort of legal- You have to make your,
1: you to make your co- uh, conviction calls, that's for sure. Exactly. Okay, uh, last question here in that section is about uh, uh, ESG and impact, etc. Uh, very fashionable uh, mm-hmm. uh, new toy as well. How does that influence your uh, your investment policy? I see on your website that you actually have an ESG approach, uh, even in the, in the bottom line, but uh, uh, can you outline how that actually impacts uh, your selection process, your investment process?
0: So we believe as a fund, ESG is not a choice, it's a necessity. And the world is moving in that direction, and rightly so. So um, we're fully bought into the idea um, from an investment point of view, I think there's a lot of companies that rode that wave of hype with very little substance. So one important thing is to differentiate that from really the impactful companies. Mm-hmm. Important to mention, we're not an impact fund. So it wouldn't be a category that exclusively has to be met in order for us to invest. So even if you... So
1: no SFDR9. <laughs> we're,
0: not, we're, not, we're not an impact yeah, yeah. fund. It's so i think it's important to mention we have to be also honest about this having said that because we actually think uh, ironic not ironically but we actually think it's a business opportunity we think that there is a return to be made for our investors from such investments we actually have invested in a um, sustainable construction company and a solar company as i mentioned before five food tech companies um so so We do invest in that space, but not exclusively. Now, how does ESG policies and the likes impact our interactions with potential investments, even if a company is not a sustainable company? There are certain things, especially on the social front, like diversity within the team, uh, like sourcing and supply chain, et cetera, that we can challenge and ask. So we're currently in the process of finding the most efficient structure for VCs, because it's not that straightforward. As you probably know, regulation is one thing, and then actually implementation is a whole nother thing. So we're looking at ways how to structure it. We work with other VCs on that front and organizations to understand how we can actually implement ESG rules um, into our day-to-day in terms of questionnaires and reportings from our portfolio companies, what is feasible. At the moment, there is a lot of gray area that isn't quite clear. Um, mm-hmm. And this is something that we're working on on figuring out. Okay.
1: Um, uh, that's probably more about uh, talking or addressing the, uh, the the second question, which goes about the firm sorry. structure and the reporting of ESG. Oh, but so, uh, yeah. I was just curious about the the the, the actual investment approach uh, side of things. Yeah, so, so,
0: so so let's talk impact, about that afterwards. Impact fund, but we have a lot of companies that would qualify
1: in yeah. that area. Okay, very good. Now, with the next section, we're talking about your firm structure, the firm governance, um, all this uh, a bit more technical stuff. Can you talk to me a little bit about your about Red Alpine's governance, uh, how you operate, uh, how you interact with your funds as well, all this kind of thing?
0: Yes, sure. Um, So probably no surprise there. we have a Lux based fund structure. Um, it's very uh, sort of common and really the gold standard in our industry. It also offers a lot more flexibility and um is very much accepted by international investors. So I think it's very important um that that we we, we have that. Um we also, as I mentioned before, we we, apart from the classical Luxembourg structure, we also have um, the IFM renting model, so you know this layer of security where IFM is reviewing our investments and and um, and what we do.
1: That's part and of the the Lux structure, right? Uh, so yeah, you have
0: it's, okay. Exactly, we mm-hmm. combined the two. Let's say, um, and um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it in terms of structure. Um,
1: so do you have an umbrella fund and the, the Red Alpine Capital 1 is a is a is a is a Correct. segregated account of that etc that sort of thing okay mm-hmm.
0: that's exactly right and um yeah other than that um i think that's pretty much it um i think that a lot of uh, vc funds have that structure and um we never had any feedback from our investors that something was sort of out of the ordinary we try to be pragmatic and have the most uh, efficient yet your mm. approach but that's basically it
1: sure who's your aifm um
0: i believe it's a company called Hauk. i would have to double check with um with with uh, my legal counsel to be mm. honest <laughs> he's, mostly, okay. he's mostly involved in that part of of sure. um of the of the yeah
1: sure the, Okay. Uh, Do you have any licenses? Uh, So is Red Alpine a FINMA-registered, FINMA-licensed asset manager?
0: So not currently. Uh, We're not currently. um, We keep looking at it and reviewing it to see whether it makes sense for us to be part of of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're obviously aware of it. um, But at the moment, we sort of use the best-in-class practices that are out there. And um, we, as I mentioned, we have to balance being pragmatic and efficient um, with sort of um, the regulatory part. And um, it's something that we have on, on our radar, but we're not part of it yet, no.
1: Right. So you are you're acting as an advisor to the funds and technically you have a management company basically that That's that exactly formally right. takes the decisions. That's
2: correct. Right. That's
1: exactly mm-hmm. okay, interesting. Good. Um, team diversity of expertise. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah um very diverse because as i mentioned we are at the intersection of science and tech mm-hmm. so we have, how many
1: people actually work for red alpine in the investment uh, team if it as it were? So
0: were overall we're about 30 people and uh-huh. the investment team is about half of that okay um, the above and we have an office in zurich and berlin as i mentioned earlier mm-hmm. um the team is diverse in that we have the science background part and the operative part so i myself was a founder Peter, who's the founding partner, actually is um, um, has IPO'd his own company in the past. Mm-hmm. Michael has a um, a scientific background um, and a PhD in microbiology, if I remember correctly. Um, so we are kind of 50-50. It fluctuates a little bit on the science and the tech side. Um, but most of us had operational experience prior to joining uh, Red Alpine um, or have founded something themselves. So... Mm-hmm. So that's it's quite diverse, I think. Um, Yeah, and I think that's pretty much it.
1: Okay, very good. Um, we talked before a little bit about the ESG, how it impacted your uh, your investment process, and you mentioned that you're you're actually working with other VCs about uh, about the reporting of uh, of ESG and how you actually uh, are about to do that. Uh, so, are you saying that there is a sort of an initiative foot in the industry about uh, defining a standard approach to ESG reporting?
0: I think absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know. Is that he... in
1: the, is that a uh, SECA doing something like that or w- where is that happening?
0: Oh, so I think there's, uh, sorry, when you asked the question, I thought whether generally, so I think there's lots of different initiatives happening in Europe, mm-hmm. right? To find the right way for us as a VC industry to implement all these rules and regulations and expectations around ESG. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ourselves actually are working with a few um, top VCs in Europe and other organizations to come up with some sort of framework ourselves based wow, on okay. our experience um, and, and come up with, but but obviously we reach to other organizations to get their input and their expertise on the, on the mm-hmm. topic. Um, But we also are not the kind of Fund that sits back uh, and just passively watches what's happening. We want to be the fourth leader as well, and mm-hmm. so here we're extremely proactive and we're trying to also be part of the solution and 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 try to set something up that works for everybody. Mm-hmm.
1: Ah, that's great. But th- there's no th- there's no in that sense industry initiative which is uh, spearheaded by a trade association or something like that. It's just a, a just a network uh, of your uh, of your peers uh, working yeah. on this.
0: I mean, not that I know of. I know that there are a few initiatives that maybe you can call them maybe organizations or not. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure where VCs get together and have a knowledge exchange, Um, Mm -hmm. but um, there's a few of those. I don't think there is sort of one, um, not that I would know of anyway, but I might be wrong, of course.
1: <laughs> okay. If
0: you find out. Let me know. <laughs>
1: uh, will do. All right. Um, do you have experience with managed account uh, structures other than your own, obviously? But uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I mean, from a from an institutional perspective, uh, uh, it could be of interest to actually give you a mandate uh, for for a managed account structure in a multi-manager uh, context as well. Uh, so, w- any thoughts about that?
0: Yeah, it's something that we get asked or offered quite a lot. And so far, we've been a little bit skeptical of the structure. Um, and the reasons are manifold. I think it's something that we keep in mind, because we get asked a lot uh, all the time about it. Um, but there are a few things that are holding us back a little bit from from uh, sort of pursuing that approach. And, um one of them is, I think, the potential conflict of interest between our existing LP base and and the mandated um, account. Um, another one is,
1: which could be managed by uh, by uh, on a contractual basis, where you just uh, state uh, that uh, that investments happen in a pari passu uh, kind of way, for instance, and. Uh... Yeah yeah
0: <laughs> potentially potentially um i think that there is more complexity it's just not not just this aspect that might lead to there being some ex, um, exclusionary clauses for one but not the other and from an administrative point of view to manage two potentially separate um investment contracts let's say or mandates uh, let's mm-hmm. say i it's um it's something that requires quite a lot of overhead and quite a lot of administrative complexity um you know just to manage it you're absolutely right one thing is to put it down on paper as a contract another one is to actually implement that right and so that's one thing and the other thing is also that um i think as a fund we need to move or have the ability to move quickly in order to win deals which sometimes what we heard with mandate accounts can be quite difficult or that it it is an additional blocker or an additional hurdle that we need to overcome um and it's in our interest to win the best deals that are out there and sometimes time is of essence to do so Um, so I think this is, um, this is probably another consideration, but it's, it's something that we consider all the time. We review it all the time. It's not something that's completely off the table, mm-hmm. um, something where we had a bit of a tough time getting our heads around in the context of what we do. Mm,
1: right. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, you already mentioned that you are actually taking the lead, uh, most of the times in the investment, um, uh, syndicates that you're working in. So, uh. So that's that's already answered, I guess.
0: <laughs> but that's correct. We we try. Um, we believe that the early stages of a company are so crucial in mm-hmm. how they evolve and develop and where they get to that we would like to be very intrinsically involved. And mm-hmm. the fact most of us have had operational experience means that we do have to know how to do so. Um, and again, because we have only eighteen to twenty investments per fund, sure. we want to make sure that if we do the investment, we really um you know, we put our mouth where we put the money, let's say we really <laughs> it's the other um, way around,
1: but, then... <laughs> in this, but
0: in this case we first put in the money, but then we want to you know actually do something okay. with the investment and not just passively look at it.
1: Now, in the last section, we come to your recommendations. Uh, we have a couple of recommendations that uh, that you could uh, give to our listeners. The first one is about media. So books, blogs, uh, podcasts, whatever. Uh, this podcast obviously is excluded. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, any Special media recommendations from your end, particularly obviously of uh, VC interest, but any other might be of uh, might be good too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always find um, interesting to follow um, blog posts actually from some of the top investors out there. And what is also interesting is some research pieces
2: that. Mm-hmm
0: bigger US funds put out, um, because I think it gives you an indication of where they think the world is heading. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I actually think that as a VC, you have to understand the world around you, not specifically from a tech point of view, but from the context that the tech is supposed to be implemented in. So any media where you have some sort of analysis um, of an industry or a situation, is, in my opinion, incredibly important. Because when you make a decision about a tech investment, you have to understand it in the context of the world that we live in, and whether it's something that we have huge potential for, what are the hurdles. And you can only sure. understand that if you know the world around you. So nothing specific, per se. Um, but I read the MIT review, for instance. I find that the, the, the what the MIT review or ah, the Harvard okay. review um, some articles within The Economist are very analytical. Obviously, mm-hmm. not every topic might be relevant there. Um, but yes, I think um, blogs, blog posts, Andreessen does a lot of good research pieces on their website. You can access that.
1: Right. So MIT Review and Andreessen's uh, 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 series or posts. Okay. Uh, who should we talk to in the VC space uh, for upcoming uh, t- uh, podcasts, et cetera?
0: So um, I thought about um, who I would recommend here quite hard. And I think there are two names that um, come to mind. And one is Simon Enderley, who I think really has a very good understanding of the importance of entrepreneurship and innovation
2: mm-hmm.
0: and also understands the complexities of the market or what the biggest hurdles are to innovation. So I think he would be a fantastic person to ask. Mm-hmm. And um, another person, more on the institutional side, let's say, is um, a person who is head of private markets at Reichmut and um, used to be at LGT. So he also has a different perspective on VCs from from that of an potential LP, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's Stefan Müllermann, and I think that he also could give a interesting and different perspective altogether. Mm-hmm. So okay. The classical VC people you're after, but nevertheless very important angles to the same topic.
1: Absolutely, very good. Um, and what's your most exciting recent tech find? Uh, yeah. So gadgets or uh, technology per se, any innovation that uh, that hit your retina uh, or ears?
0: <laughs> yes. So um, I would say that. Um, I thought about that a lot as well. Um, (laughs) I I recently um, had uh, my second son and um, what it's not really tech per se, but it's a platform um, that allows you to um, order baby clothes or rent baby clothes and then send them back. Oh, uh, interesting. It's a Swiss company. company. They're called Oi, Oi, Oi. Mm -hmm. What I like about it is that uh, firstly, children clothes are super expensive and kids grow out of them really quickly.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: secondly, I think it's very sustainable because it means that these clothes and, and the retail industry, the clothing industry is a, a huge pollutant in our yeah. world. Um, so I think it's incredible that they actually try to make it sustainable as well by reusing clothing that is, you know, barely touched. Um, and uh, not per se maybe super techie, but it's a platform that a gives a sustainable solution, and I think it's an actual real problem that they're solving. And I thought it was relevant to mention because it was very relevant to me as a mom of two. And um, it's important that it solves an actual problem. And I can contest to that, yeah, that it's yeah, an actual yeah. problem.
1: That's an interest. it certainly is an interesting idea. I mean, the classical approach would be to have a, a, a bunch of kids in close uh, sequence, right? Uh, and then you could actually <laughs> recycle their clothes uh, throughout that. But, uh, but you know, <laughs>
0: She said, I actually asked the founder, and she said that one pack of, of their clothes, because they always do packets, can be reused, I think, seven or eight times before oh, wow. it uh, is, so seven or eight kids. Uh-huh. Um, no judgment, but I'm good with two. So <laughs> I think after two, you could still reuse some of this clothes and and it would still be perfectly fine. Um, mm. But yes, I mean, maybe some people want to have eight to make it sustainable.
1: <laughs> exactly. All right. So you said Oioioi oi, oi, is, is the name? Oioioi, oi, to... oi, so
0: it's O-I-O-I-O-I. And okay. they're a Swiss company, which I thought I really wanted to highlight a Swiss um, solution here on this podcast.
1: Fantastic. I'll look them up and include them in the show notes. Hey, that's it. Thank you very much.
0: much. Thank you, Christian. It has been a really wonderful chatting with you.
1: Congratulations. You've made it through this episode with Alexander Alaska of Red Alpine. Please remember that nothing in this podcast can be or should be construed as investment advice. If you like this podcast, please give it top marks on the podcasting platform of your choice and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you didn't like it quite so much, however, please get in touch with me, Chris Dreyer, and tell me what I should do to improve it. I'd love to learn from you. Until then, in the timeless words of Steve Jobs, stay hungry, stay foolish. Mm